Good morning, church. You know, for daylight savings, you look pretty good. I, real, real honest, a moment of honesty. How many of you normally go to the earlier service? Come on, raise your hand. All right, so at least three of you are honest. Great. Good to have you here this morning. Listen, a couple things you need to know about. About six weeks ago, we had our annual family meeting where we, um, as a church, accepted a new set of bylaws which we really wanted to get on board with us as a church. We had kind of an old set for about 25 years ago. And we said, hey, let's operate the way God has designed us as a church. And so we're very excited about that. But one of the things that we're, we're pushed through in our bylaws is that we have kind of a new um, class that we're going to be doing around the idea of membership. People have been asking for a couple of years, hey, what are we doing with members? And we're like, just hold on, just hold on. We're working on it, we're working on it. Well, we've, we've figured it out, and here's the deal. Um, this membership idea, we're going to actually call it ownership because we think that word actually matches what we mean by it a little bit better. But we're going to be having a couple ownership classes uh, in this next month. So in two weeks from today, right after this service at 1 p.m. Um, on March 22nd, and then um, after Easter on April 12th, we're going to be having um, ownership classes. And you're going to be here about what does it mean to own this place? What does it mean to step in and, and to be a part of what God is doing here? If you're interested in participating with that, all you need to do is go out after the um, service, go into the commons. Um, there's a place called the Connection Point, and there's two sign-up lists, one for one date and one for the other date. Again, lunch will be provided for you, so please sign up. We need to know who's coming um, so that we can you know, prepare the right amount of food for that. But we want as many people who call this place home as possible to step up and be an owner of what God is doing here. So check that out and ask questions out at the connection point. Of course, in about a month, we have one of our big holidays, Easter. And we're very, we're very excited about this holiday. And one of the things that we want to continue asking of you is that in our mission, it says that we want to be a church that effectively reaches out to unchurched people in love, acceptance, and forgiveness. Well, Easter is a fantastic time to do that because we get to celebrate Jesus' resurrection and what that means to a broken and fallen word. We want to encourage you, bring people. So here's the deal. We'll be doing three normal services like we normally do, but we're going to add one service. It's in the morning on Sunday, an Easter Sunday morning at 8 a.m., okay? Sleep in service. I have a challenge for you. I double-dog dare you to show up at that 8 o'clock service because these services are going to be packed and I want to encourage as many as possible to come to that first one so we can kind of evenly distribute it over that Sunday Easter morning. So I want to encourage you, be a part of what God's doing here and um, if you're really spiritual, you'll show up at the first service. Amen. <laughs> well, we're in uh, this great series uh, called Chameleon and uh, Grant's here to give us our fourth installment. Grant? Awesome. Thanks, Todd. Good morning, everybody. If you're, uh, what did he just say? If you're, if you're godly, you'll come to, the, or if you're very spiritual, you'll come to the first one. Yeah, we all know truly godly people. We don't start breathing till 11 a.m., do we? Right? Awesome. And it's, uh, that clock is still wrong. So I know the sacrifice it took for you to get in the room because it is only 1036, which means you're not going to breathe for another 24 minutes before we actually get into this. You guys are my people. I'm glad that you're here today. So if I haven't met you before, my name is Grant, one of the teaching pastors here. Glad that you're here. And if you've got a Bible with you, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2 as we walk through this. Last night I arrived at church. Believe it or not, sometimes pastors are in bad moods. In fact, actually it happens more often than not. But showed up last night just kind of in one of those bad, heavy moments. Felt like I had a little black rain cloud just kind of following me around everywhere that I went. 
And I went upstairs to the prayer room. We do kind of a run through later on in the afternoon on Saturdays. Get ready for the Saturday service. I went upstairs to the prayer room. And I'm sitting there holding on to my little bad mood. Like, and don't pretend you guys are all so holy like you've never had a bad mood, right? I've watched you people at Costco. I know how you act, okay? <laughs> Just kind of carrying this little cloud around, you know, over top of my head and not knowing exactly what to do with it. And I sit there and this is what God says to me. Tell them, to the people in my little prayer group. I'm like, this was my godly response. No. <laughs> no, I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to be the leader. Speed of the leader, speed of the team, right? If I'm in a bad mood, everybody else is going to be, I mean, just all that kind of garbage stuff that goes around through your brain. So I, that's what I told God. No, I'm not sharing the fact that I'm in a bit of a bad mood. This was his response to me. Okay, then keep it. <laughs> well, fine, if you're going to be that way about it, right? <laughs> told me twice. Tell them. So I did. I said, guys, just going to be honest with you. Of all the people in Whatcom County that should probably be preaching this weekend, it should probably be somebody else, maybe a great big tall guy or, or a guy named Fred or somebody like that could come back and kind of do their thing. I said, I, I, I am not quote unquote feeling it and I hope it's okay to be able to tell you that. And you know what's amazing? I got to go to church last night before church even started this weekend because three people in the group just popped up, walked over, hand on the shoulder. God, whatever this is, would you just like shoo it away? Would you just tear it off? Say, this is not a part of the message, but can I say this? If you dragged a little black rain cloud in, I know that it was a challenge because it's really sunny outside. But if you dragged a little black rain cloud of mood over with you, can I just say I'm glad you're here? I'm glad you're here, and I hope you get to experience what I experienced last night. I hope you walk out of here different than you walked in. I hope if you have one of those things just kind of hanging over top of you, my prayer is that you'll leave it here at the foot of the cross and walk out different. All right? So, it had nothing to do with the message, but let's dive in, okay? My wife and I just returned from a quick trip to Saskatchewan. If you don't know where that is, central Canada, very cold, okay? There's nothing like the freezing cold plains and tundra of the province of Saskatchewan to make you love the balmy Mediterranean temperatures of Washington State, okay? (laughs) It's just how it works. But we flew up there. We flew from Abbotsford to Calgary, Calgary to the capital city of Saskatchewan, the province where Laurel grew up. And as we flew there, we shared an armrest, which was no problem whatsoever because I like my wife's elbows and I don't mind sharing space with her. I'm no problem doing that, okay? But it's not always that easy. And if you've ever been on an airplane, you're going to feel my pain in just a couple moments, right? It's not easy sometimes to try and figure out who does that armrest actually belong to? right? Let me show you a picture that's going to make all of you very uncomfortable. This is an actual picture of an actual guy on an actual plane taken by an actual seatmate who had to actually sit next to him. Just, okay, soak it in. Aren't you glad you came to church? Okay, shut it off and make it go away because it's scarring people as we're going. Okay, awesome. All right, okay. So I've never had to sit beside that guy or share an armrest with that guy. I've never had to do that. But I have had situations on airplanes where I've had to try and figure out who owns that little piece of real estate in between me and the person next to me, okay? I walked onto an airplane not too long ago, and there was a guy sitting there, you know, three seats set. Okay, you got three seats in a row, and this guy's got the middle seat, and he's a, he's a larger guy. 
and he had staked his territory. And as I was walking down the aisle and realized I had to sit next to him, he was in no uncertain terms. He was sitting like this with his arms, elbows flexed on both armrests as if to say, go ahead, try and take him. Okay? Now, if you've ever been in that situation before, you have options, okay? One of the options is to erase the border, put the armrest up, and have the attitude, if I can't have the armrest, you're not having it either. Now, if you're like me, the fact that he had hairy arms took care of that whole thing, and I'm not touching that, okay? Especially for a long period of time, all right? You could use another approach, which is to take the germ warfare approach, which is you walk up to your seat and fake a coughing fit. And just go, <laughs> and as they lean away, you take the armrest. That's how it works, okay? Or you can fake a skin condition. All you do is just frantically rub on this arm like this. They will move away, and then it's like, yeah, that's mine right there, okay? You have options. Another option was I thought I could slip my slender, non-hairy elbows underneath of his monstrous, obnoxious, hairy elbows, but that, again, would have involved touching, so that was off the table. Right? I could have waited for what I call the, 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 the nature's call ambush. At some point, he's got to go to the bathroom. And the second he vacates that territory, that armrest is mine, and I will not twitch for the rest of my time sitting there. You could become the armrest martyr. You've probably experienced it. How many of you have seen the movie Shrek? You know the little cat when he's trying to get his way? What he does, you know, he takes off his hat. And his eyes become really, really, really big. You just look forlorn at the armrest. And then look at the person. Back to the armrest. Back to the person. About four or five times. That's as much as it takes. And they'll just like, okay, fine, just take it. Okay, that's how it works for you, all right? Or you could take a clue from the official guide for armrest etiquette. You probably didn't even know there was one of those. But there is. And these supposed armrest experts have said this. The window gets an armrest on a wall... So the center, therefore, gets both of the center armrests because the aisle gets an armrest and extra leg room. What do those idiots know? No. I wanted the armrest, and so this is what I did. As a mature follower of Jesus, you're going to be so proud of me, this was my response. I just sat there and got angrier and angrier and angrier. And you know what's funny right now is people in this room are shifting because you just decided you're taking both armrests with the persons you're sitting next to. I'm watching ripples happen all over the room. It's just like, get that thing off there. Right? I got angrier and angrier to a point where I started to turn red. Now stay with me, okay? We've been learning a few things about chameleons in this series as God has been calling us to stand out against the backdrop of popular culture, to blend in against the backdrop of God's grace and mercy. And this morning, I want to expose a chameleon myth. So just remember, I'm red with anger as I'm sitting there because I want this territory that this guy is refusing to give me. Here's a myth that you might find interesting. Chameleons only change their color to blend in with their surroundings. That's not true. In fact, it's number five on their list of reasons why they change color. Here's the truth. A chameleon actually changes color as a signal of mood, and I was in a bad one, as a signal of aggression, and I was starting to get frustrated, as a signal that they're ready to mate, which had nothing to do with my... (laughs) Nothing. Take that off the table, all right? And then the final one, they take the most... Uh, aggression and turn the most color when they're getting ready to stake territory that they think belongs to them. 
So in that moment for me, I'm full on chameleon. I'm turning red and I'm in a bad mood because I'm thinking this territory belongs to me. But a chameleon is relaxed. It's kind of a pale green color. When it's mad, it's bright yellow. When it's ready to mate, it'll show off all of its colors very, very quickly, which reminds me of how some of you date each other, right? It's just a different color, different color, different color, different color, different color. Okay. Just saying. And finally, when it's claiming territory, guess what color it turns? The same color I was on that airplane. Bright red. This is mine. So here's the deal. When a chameleon changes color, it really has everything to do with communication. It's communicating what it loves, what it wants. Which leads me to a question. If I send somebody out to follow you around for 336 hours, two complete weeks, if someone came and actually got an opportunity to examine your life very, very closely, what would you communicate? be communicating to them about what you love and what you want? Because what I love and what I want says a lot about me. Okay, remember that all morning. What I love and what I want says a lot about me. Here comes a tough passage of scripture. 1 John chapter 2, the Bible says this. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. This verse says this, with no punches pulled. If I love the world and stake my territory here, I can't love God at the same time. This verse says, I can't have a love affair with the world and a love affair with Jesus simultaneously. They are completely contradictory to each other. They're incompatible. So let's ask the obvious question, right? What in the world does it mean to love the world? What, what does that mean? Okay, John breaks it down into bite-sized sections for us, and he actually gives us descriptors. If you love the world, these three descriptors will describe you. The cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does. Okay, let's take them apart one by one. Here's the first one, first descriptor, the craving of sinful man, okay? This does have a physical sexual element to it, okay? This is the voice that says this. If you just cross that boundary and experience that physical taboo, that will satisfy you. If you just get right up to the edge and fulfill whatever sexual appetite you might have, just go there, you will fulfill a part of your soul that will just, it will make you happy, okay? In its simplest terms, John's saying this, you love the world when you're preoccupied by gratifying physical desire, whether it's done with a chat on Facebook, whether it's done with a click on the internet, whether it's done with an extramarital affair, whether it's done with 50 shades of whatever, if you're preoccupied by gratifying physical desire, John has the audacity to say you're actually having a love affair with the world and that means you don't love God. Ah. So when satisfying that craving leads down the wrong path and it becomes your focus and your obsession, John has the audacity to say you're actually in love with the world. And what that means 
Don't say you're in love with God. Let's keep going. Second descriptor is the lust of the eyes. Now, this is a voice, actually, that speaks inside of all of us. We all have this at some point that says this, I got to have that. If I have that, I'll be satisfied. If I have that little piece of technology, this hole in my soul will be completely filled with Apple products and I'll be so happy for the rest of my life. If I just have that particular truck with those kind of rims, even though it depreciates at 30% the second I drive it off the lot, that will satisfy me. Just give me that and I will be completely and totally fulfilled. I don't care if it's obsolete the second I buy it. It doesn't matter. You guys know that, right? Yeah. Guess what Apple's working on right now on, your, on behalf of your iPhone 6? Number 7. You're already behind the times. And yet there's something inside of us. It's just, no, I got to have that. In its simplest terms, you love the world when you crave material possession. I love to think of it this way, right? So think about whatever it is. Whatever that want or desire is. And ask the question, how do I know if I love it too much? I would answer the question this way. I can never, if I can never picture myself parting with it, then it owns me more than I own it. Let me say that again. If I can never picture myself parting with it, whatever it is, then it owns me more than I own it. There's a classic story in scripture about how the lust of the eyes can just lead us down the wrong path. Abraham and Lot, uncle and nephew, have been walking under the guidance of God for many, many years together. And then they come to a place where relationally they just need to go in two different directions. And they're standing on the top of a hill. And Abraham says this to his nephew. I want you to look across this vast expanse of land. And whatever you want, whatever section you want, all you have to do is name it and it's yours. And the Bible has this amazing little phrase. It says, Lot looked up and he saw what was good in his own eyes. He sees this section of land. It looks, it looks fertile. It looks beautiful. It looks blessed. It looks populated. It's just like, oh, I want that. I want to go that direction. Here was the problem with the section of land that Lot decided to go for. Right in the middle of it were two infamous cities. You may recognize their names. Sodom and Gomorrah. If you don't know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, you should read that part of your Bible. It's pretty amazing. And a little scary. Lot is led by his eyes because his eyes communicated something to him. His eyes lied to him and said, that's valuable. And Abraham's standing over here going, um. Actually, the only thing that's valuable is what God says is valuable. And we've been living underneath of his obedience. So the fact that you want to go the opposite direction for the rest of us, that should be a clue. The Bible teaches us over and over we can't trust our eyes. You know why? Because your eyes carry a different value than real value. I'll define that in just a minute. And here's the last section. John says, you know you love the world if you're wrapped up in the boasting of what he has and what he does. All right? This is the voice that says it's true. The universe is all about you. You're the most important thing there is. It's about your nameplate, your corner office, your ascension up, of, uh, up the corporate ladder, you know, the size of your salary, the size of your vehicle, the size of your home. It's all about that. That is true, true value. You are defined. This voice will say you're defined by what you do, what you've done, and what you have. In the simplest terms, 
John is saying, you love the world when you're obsessed with personal status. And we've all met this person, haven't we, right? Their favorite topic is them. And they want to tell you, look at what I've accumulated. Look at how big of a deal I am. Look at my accomplishments. Look at my resume. Look at my pay stuff. Look at me. We've all met that person. So you take all three of those and you wrap them up, right? John doesn't pull any punches. He says, the person that loves the world basically says, I want to be sexually unrestrained. I want to be able to do whatever I want to, whenever I want to, with whoever I want to. I want to be able to tell you how amazing I am. And I want to be able to show you everything that I've ever got. Because anything I see, I get. Kind of a sad picture, isn't it? So if that's the ugly side of it, let's flip it over. If that's what it means to love the world, what does it mean to not love the world? Let's turn it over. Let's turn all three of those descriptors over and look at what it means to not love the world. I mean, in contrast to that last picture, God actually shows us a picture here of someone who refuses to blend in with the values of the world and instead values what God loves. So I can say this, I'm not loving the world and I love what God loves when I value, here's the first one, when I value God's love of self-control. First descriptor of a person that doesn't love the world, they just do whatever they want to physically, it doesn't make any difference. God says, actually, I love and appreciate people who have some level of self-control. Instead of chasing forbidden fruit, part of being a follower of Jesus, I've just decided to go after a different kind of fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. And can anybody la- let me know what the last one is? Self-control. It means this. I don't view myself as that little obnoxious dog that runs into a room and because it's natural, attaches itself to somebody's leg and does something embarrassing. Is that blunt enough for everybody? Or are we just talking today? Right? It's just like, no, no, no. That, that No. No. I'm a follower of Jesus, which means I tend to do what is unnatural, which is to pursue purity in my mind, body, and spirit. I'm a follower of Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, no longer a slave to sin. So that means I have the power and authority to say no to the temporary and yes to God's eternal best. Can I get an amen from somebody on that one? I'm going to choose to love God over loving the world. And here's the last one. Remember the, first, the, the last one in the descriptors of John of someone that doesn't love the world? It's all about the person bragging about themselves. Well, I know I don't love the world and I love God when I value God's love of generosity. It means this. As a follower of Jesus, I'm not interested in stockpiling stuff. Nothing wrong with your stuff. Like, I think your stuff's great. I think it's a blessing from God. I think you should enjoy it. But it means I'm not motivated by just stockpiling a great big bunch of stuff. But instead, I take my cues from Jesus who said, freely you have received, freely give. So now I'm going to say something. I'm going to read some verses to you from 1 Timothy chapter 6. And some of you are going to disqualify yourself immediately because the first couple of words, it says, command those who are rich. And you're going to go, rich, I'm out. You've heard me say this before. You usually get a couple of emails afterwards because this offends somebody at some level. I'm not exactly sure why, but can I just say this? If you're in this room today, fully clothed, and you've had at least one meal already, 
you are in the 96th percentile of the richest people on the face of this planet. You understand that? 96% of the population of this earth has less than you do. You're like, wow. If you actually drove here in a vehicle, whether you own it or the bank owns it, and you have a home, whether it's rented or owned, that actually puts you in the 98th percentile of the richest people on the face of this planet. Do we get that? Whether we like it or not, whether we feel like it or not, I know this is a terrible burden to bear, but you're rich. And if you have a family that loves you, you're a whole other kind of rich. And if you have a God that saved your soul and you've acknowledged it, you are the wealthiest person on the face of the earth. Just saying, okay? So now, knowing that, you should be able to handle this. Okay, ready? First Timothy chapter 6. <laughs> Command those who are rich. Command them in this present world not to be arrogant. That's just good wisdom. Not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth. Because we all know how that works, don't we? You put your hope in wealth and what happens? Wealth just crumbles and disappears. It can be gone in an instant. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything, and I love these words, for our enjoyment. If God's blessed you, enjoy it. Don't begrudge it. Don't feel guilty for it. Don't let it own you. Enjoy it. If God blessed you with a beautiful day, Get outside. This is what bugged me about myself yesterday. Gorgeous day outside, and what am I doing? I'm towing a rain cloud around with me everywhere I go. That's smart. Guess who missed out on the most beautiful part of God's gift yesterday? I did. Don't be like me. Go out today. Enjoy it. It's a gift of God to every single one of us. Let's keep going. Who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good. To be rich in good deeds, be generous, willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly or really life. So how do I know that I love God more than I love the world? It's when I love God's love of generosity and I'm not afraid to live my life that way. Here's the last little piece. We're going to flip Remember the last descriptor of John, of someone that loves the world? They love to brag about themselves. They're all about themselves and their accomplishment and their resume. Well, I know if that's what it looks like to love the world, if I love God, it means I love and value God's love of humble service. Matthew 20, 28, as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So it's time for a gut check. Do you love the world or do you love God? You can't do both. You've got to choose. Time for a chameleon check, if you want to call it that way. You're blending in with popular culture and chasing the values that the world says are okay. Or you're chasing the beautiful things that God says. It may not give you a lot of worldly wealth, but it will give you eternal satisfaction. Some of you are like, I don't like gut checks. 
Why do we do them here? It's because the Bible says each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to anybody else. For each one should carry his own load. So I'm asking myself the question, what do I value? What do I love and what do I want? What color am I showing the world when I try to go after what I love and what I, lo- what I want? Do I love what the world offers? Well, I said it earlier. I'm going to put it in your outline this way. How do I know if I love it too much, whatever it is? Well, if I can never picture myself parting with it, then it owns me more than I own it. Can I remind you of something? If you read your Bible from beginning to end, I want to remind you of the fact that all of this, all of it, all going to go away someday. All going to disappear. I have finally succumbed to peer pressure. After 16 years of being asked to do a series on Revelation, I'm going to dare you to come in here all summer long. Last part of June, July, and August, we're going to work through every single chapter and every single verse of the most controversial book in the Bible... I've always just not done it because I'm like, everybody else does it. I'm not doing it. I'm going to do it, okay? We're going to walk through it. But I want to tell you something I've already learned from reading that epic novel at the end of Scripture. One of the key takeaways is this. All this stuff, it's going to go away. It's going to burn. Poof. It's a sobering thought, right? Everything of the world, with the exception of God's word and people, It's going to pass away. So I've got a decision to make. Am I going to attach myself to that? Or am I going to attach myself to God? Because I can't love God and the world at the same time. The Bible says it's impossible. The Bible also says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. One of my favorite verses in scripture. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth or possessions and enables him to enjoy them. There it is again. God keeps saying, enjoy it. To accept his lot and to be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. I hope all of us can learn how to enjoy that gift, to enjoy it more. How do we do that? If I fully embrace love 